It's no secret that people with a lower socioeconomic status have less access to basic resources, from education to financial to mental health and wellness. And when we think about trauma and racial injustice, we often tend to forget the connection it has to mental health and wellness, like how the simple act of a platonic physical touch can bring a sense of healing, and in some cases, change. Well, my guest today, Aaron Johnson, has found a way to discuss healing and trauma in the Black community, as well as practicing closeness as a way to break down barriers between all people. You're listening to We Need to Talk. We Need to Talk. Aaron Johnson, thank you so much for being on We Need to Talk today. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. It's an honor to be here with you. I have been just looking into all of the work that you're doing, and it's really important, especially nowadays. We, we need this approach to anti-racism work. But also one of the things that I love about what you're doing is you have a really big focus on healing. And I think specifically with people of color, uh, with trauma, and, and we know that trauma can be passed down from generations, um, trauma and healing is something that doesn't typically come to the forefront of conversations, but that's really kind of the root of where a lot of things start and, and how things spiral. And so I would just love to know how you got into this space and why you decided to take the approach that you are taking with the work and the initiatives that you have. It's pretty clear. Um, for me, I have found that if we're not doing practices or thinking about our own folks, that nobody's coming um, to save us in so many ways. And so there's a mandatory space in my mentorship program of like, I have these young black men that are struggling with mental health, they're struggling with touch, they're struggling with this container. And so we, it forced me to be creative while taking on this impossible task and to create an environment for us to have a chronically under-touched project be born. Holistic resistance was born in a similar container as well. And so for me, there's a, a narrative continuously of me realizing many, many places where um, I have to create, um, imagine, dream, invest in uh, healing practices for my village and for Black folk. Um, for me, for me, creating the, the village space um, for Black folks that can deal with tender touch, that can deal with holistic resistance, that can deal with creating a, basically a nest um, for healing that I didn't see available. And so I entered in very practically. I, I, I entered in with a desire to save or support or um, cause have less damage happen to young Black folks around me. And so holistic resistance was based on that same idea of me mentoring and supporting young Black folks and trying to survive oppression. And the Chronic and Touched project was also born in that same context, as I saw that there was no actual platonic safe place for cis Black men to build a touch plan for themselves and to have safe conversations or brave conversations around what it means to be tender and close to each other in a platonic container. And so because of the lack of that, I, I, I got ambitious and was like, let's try and work on this. And so for the last seven years, we've been developing, experimenting, falling down, getting back up. But the the entry point is is wanting to have more places on the, United, in, in the, on the planet, but in the United States specifically, where Black folks can show up as complete human beings and not be confusing to the container. And so that's kind of what bring me into the work. And that's the tactics I, I, I try and utilize continuously. I love that. What is the common thread that you have found within the people that have been a part of your programs and part of your mentorship programs? Because I personally, I've done a lot of work. I work with this organization um, and the focus is youth. 
um, in the inner city and we bring arts to them. And we found that, you know, they just don't have the exposure to arts or they had the same type of home life or they didn't have a mentor growing up or they come, maybe they come from a, a broken home. It just, it really depends. So I'm just curious if there, you have found sort of a common thread between the people that you've worked with and brought this type of healing practice into their lives. Yeah. So in our mentorship program, we do see that similar structure, economic, emotional, and kind of historical trauma come up. But it's interesting when we go into the chronic and attached area, it kind of spans all the landscapes. So um, we find that wealthy folks that have resources still have chronic and attached patterns active. Folks that are actual, you know, in, in, in poverty are being impacted economically also are undertouched. But I do know is that when we drop into folks that are, are shelter, um, challenged and have um, without homes that they're on an extreme level being chronic unattached. Mm -hmm. But I've seen folks that run their own businesses that are very successful also suffer from being chronic unattached. Very different in how they arrive there, but the results are the same. They have no particular language, practices, a place to go, or any kind of um, awareness of the through line of the Black root narrative we'll talk about a lot comes up for a Black man of like, being this black root in there that feels intact in their body, that makes it very difficult for them to be tender or to cuddle. It makes it much easier for us to be violent or aggressive towards each other. And that's like by design. And so for me, I feel a through line is capitalism and time scarcity. Um, being tender and having connection takes some time. And both on the wealthier ends or more like entrepreneur and, and leadership space, but also in a place where poverty also is very busy. You have to work multiple jobs, multiple children to feed. So they're both kind of utilize that time piece. I think what I also have seen that um, it is a, a theme I have seen is darker the skin of somebody mm. that also more weaponized their touch plan oftentimes is. I find that folks that have lighter skin that are closer to whiteness have more access to touch across the board. Um, so I have seen this colorism piece be a, almost a marker of how um, the cut project shows up. And of course that unfortunately stays consistent through other anti-racism work, but around touch, it is it is eerie on how accurate darker the skin does have impact on who feels threatened by or more concerned by or that is a factor still today. Yeah. I, I have so many follow-up questions. I just find this to be so endearing and I just really love the work that you're doing. But for my listeners, can you, and I know what you mean by it, but could you explain what you mean by chronic undertouch? Because I do really like yeah. that phrase a lot. I really, really do. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. So we, I also times throw on it the, the acronym CUT project or CUT trauma story. And that's the saying chronically under touch. Now, that was born from seven years ago. I had a mentee that um, we were in emotional conflict about this. And I tell this story in depth in my TEDx talk that's going to come out soon. So I won't want to go over all in detail, but I'll give a, a snapshot of the conflict. In that conflict, we 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 sit down. And I asked him a question amongst several, but one that stood out, I said, when was the last time you had three minutes of thoughtful, tonic touch in the last 12 months? And he looked at me, so over the last 12 months, I can't think of three minutes of thoughtful, platonic touch in my body. And we had to go back almost 15 years in his situation to find a place where thoughtful, platonic touch was not only happening, but normalized in the space. And he was like five years old playing horsey with his on his, on his grandfather's knee, this kind of universal game that's been played for generations. He remembered it as he remembered, he was getting, he was getting really softened in his energetics around it. And what I saw in that moment, and I've been kind of investigating that, the through lines of that question 
is that if I would ask him when was the last time he got a boxing match, the wrestling had violent touch, he had a list of hours and minutes and moments where that would happen. And what does that do to the nervous system? What does that do to our mind? And so being chronically intertouched is really tracking, uh, uh, giving an assessment of going, where is thoughtful touch in my life? It doesn't matter what your identity really is, but you can go through that and go, oh, snap, I, I, I hug for a couple of seconds, a couple of people once a week. And so when we start tracking that, you know, the average person could use, you know, 15 minutes of thoughtful platonic touch in their lives on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. doesn't seem like a lot. And then we do the math, realize that many people fall short of that matrix, make sure of that actual need being fulfilled. And that's not even counting, like someone actually cares and loves and wants to invest in you for an extended period of time. You know, that, that gets even more intense to have that kind of thoughtful touch. And so for me, when I talk about being crunk in a touch, is that if you have, if you're in a, in a category, it's extreme, but we'll say three minutes, like lack of three minutes per, per week, I would say you were in somewhere in the category of being chronically, it's a chronic state. Even if it feels normal and you've coped and navigated with other things, you're in a chronically undertouched state. And that could be even more extreme. Some people, like I talked to men that have a, have, have a really healthy romantic relationship and they have all kinds of people that love them. They're charismatic, they're, they're stereotypically attractive, and they're also on the chronic undertouched level because they actually have a healthy relationship, have some touch, but because of their their trauma story of being black prudence, there's no tenderness involved. There's always, there, there's no platonic. It's the only touch they actually have is either, you know, sexual contact or none. They're, the actual tender in-between space of human connection is not really present. Mm. And the vocabulary and practice create culture around touch to make it available is also hard to have access. So that would, they would still qualify as being crocodile on touch because of the the way trauma story is still showing up is you know they have a healthy, um, connected, grounded relationship um, because of their own trauma story around touch. They've actually not even invited that in. Even their partners like down for. It. Oftentimes their partners are like I'm in. Yeah, once we kind of highlight the idea, mm. their partners are in. But it never even came up until we kind of bring the bring a light to it. And so I would say anyone that has less um, than 15 minutes of blank touch per day, depending on their system, people need need more and less. We're talking about kind of white you know, broad strokes here, the average person, some people do need a lot less. Some people need a lot more, mm-hmm. but if you're, if you're, if you're, if you have a desire for touch, I should say, and you're under your 15 minutes per day of thoughtful platonic touch, I would say you're on the spectrum of being crunk and untouched. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're like the young man I work with early on, that's three minutes per 15 years. Well, that's extreme. Yeah. But in America, this is not actually rare. This is actually pretty common for most men. For sure. For sure. And I was going to say, and, and black body folks. And was, yeah. And I was going to say, there's probably and we could probably get into a statistical level that people that suffer from being chronically undertouched that falls in line with like the toxic masculinity trope, right? I could see how that mindset with, you know, you could get into these thoughts of hugging is more feminine or, um, you know, any form of tenderness is more feminine, but, you know, you're supposed to be the man, you're supposed to be the leader. You know, I, I'm sure you've probably seen a connection between those two in the work that you've done. Yes. Definitely. It's, uh, I've had many of men that were African heritage come to me and go, Aaron is for me too. And I agree. I'm not saying you're off the map, but I would say I'm prioritizing black male bodies because I watch how it's weaponized and how I look at from mainstream media to modern day pornography. I see a dominant energy of the black male being the hyper sexual image that almost sets uh, the aggressive emotionless model is the most dominant image still today yeah. that falls in line with the black brute, even over the white male, as far as the stereotype is held. Um, even though white men are constantly um, colonizing, causing harm, 
they don't get targeted the same way. And so I just want to, I, I, I want all people, all humans, and I am starting in my, in my lane because I see that the numbers, when I look at violence, I look at um, the ways we're incarcerated, I look at the justice system. I know that there's a lot of things that will help support this, but I find that tender touch is a consistent interruption to the violent behavior that's so projected upon black male bodies more so than other um, uh, identities in the United States. Yeah. I think the black woman definitely is cranky overtouched. And that's a, another mm. one of the conversation that's important because black men are undertouched. We oftentimes put pressure on our black fam partners to make up for 30 years of our trauma story around <laughs> touch and then, you know, corner and shame them when they can't um, fulfill a task that is not for them to fulfill. And so there's that balance that's complicated around the overtouch narrative versus undertouch. But once we slow down the trauma stories, there's definitely a lot of places for a lot of healing between those two categories of, of uh, identities. And everything is connected. So again, so explaining to my listeners and a lot of the listeners that I have are, I say, non-melanated folks that want to do better and, and, and want to yeah. get involved in these conversations. So how does this fall into anti-racism work for the non-melanated listener? Well, it's everything because we look at the Black brute we'll start with the white woman, is the pawn. They are the justification to the lynching of the black male body yeah. historically and, and in some ways still presently. And so if we look at our touch activist program, we have one that we reorient around white folks to work into this program. And one of the biggest things is that we want them to be able to identify the black brute when it's in front of them. Mm -hmm. We want them to be able to identify this trauma story and how they could be upon in that space. And so for me, speaking directly to the white woman in this particular moment is so important for them to understand how much they have been shaped, how much they have been conditioned, how much they might not understand how much the black brute narrative is a believable trauma story in their actual home, in their actual fantasy space, in their actual relationship. So there's there's trauma stories for white folks to be white, particularly white folks and white women, I would say, but I would say all white people to build a track and understand when they're seeing the black brute. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's so normalized in our culture. They might not even understand how much is infiltrated into their home, into their psyche. And there, there are touch specialist program. Um, we really slow down white folks and go, what does it mean to build a safe container in your community? What does it mean to track the black brute in your community and get ahead of the trauma stories and not just be falling into um, the the stereotype of being terrified or being extractive in, in, in your experience with black bodies? And so there's a specific place where we really invest in training folks to be touch activists that are white bodied so they understand how and a lot of them are parents. They're raising young black boys. They're they're in communities where they're supporting black folks. And so there's a place where they can go in and track the trauma story of the black roots so much more skillfully, mm -hmm. but also track them themselves of how they've been conditioned around it as well. And so for me, when I talk to the white folks in the touch activists and touch specialist program, which are the same program, but just kind of different layers of this trauma story we're tracking is that I want them to be skillful to be able to look at lynching material, to look at being with the history of our country as it actually is so they can be skillful and not perpetuating in their consumption of media and their um, uh, building organ. I, I deal with a lot of dance communities that do a lot of beautiful dance stuff, but when black folks show up into that space, there's these big reactions that are really based upon the black brute and these trauma stories and white folks do not know how to track it and be skillfully creating containers to get ahead of it and support. And mm -hmm. so for me, that's how I would really encourage white folks to be deeply involved in this work and be very trained to navigate their own spaces, um, but to really create um, language, body awareness, 
uh, emotional and physical stamina to stay witnessing of the the lineage of uh, the Cronkin and Touch Black Brute narrative in America and how it's still shaping um, our conversations and our visuals of Black bodies still today. And so I think the more people are aware of that and skillful on that, I, it's life-saving work. Absolutely. Uh, it, um, it truly is, especially just giving the examples that you gave, you know, specifically with the white woman and the Black male, it, that truly is life-saving because as we've seen, it can cost a Black man his life in those situations. One of the things I wanted to ask you though I'm curious, just with the people that you've worked with, I know you mentioned you've worked with dance companies before. I think one of the things that I've found in conversations I've had specifically with people of color, but more, more specifically Black men, is, you know, you get into those respectability politics of trying to change who you are to make other people feel comfortable. So in the work that you yeah. do and the conversations that you have, how do you approach it from both sides? How do you approach it with white people not having this expectation of black people to be a certain way, but also letting black people know it's okay to just be who you are and you don't need to change to make white people comfortable. Well, that's, that's a powerful dance. I have been navigating <laughs> deeply for the last seven years. Yes. And I say it because you, you, you have to look at the ecosystem. If you're a black person in Southern California and Los Angeles, I think you might can find a community where you can say, I'm going to be myself. It doesn't matter. I'm going to show up. I got support. If you're a black person in, say, on the East Coast and some of these large concerts in DC, there's like, that's all I, I don't even know how to be not myself. What are you talking about? I, I, that's, that's how I'm sure. Aaron, this is strange. You even asked, I, I'm, I'm hopelessly myself. And then you take the black person in Seattle, Washington, mm. and the ecosystem is 2% African haters, folks. The finances are massive. And if you're not the ideal black person, it could be different if you're getting a job that pays you $300,000 a year or you being like a, a busboy at a restaurant. Literally, if you're the ideal person, the global majority in these environments, the economics will follow you. And so for me, depending on where I'm at, I don't have a broad brush of like, be black. You just be black. They'll adjust. No, they won't adjust in Portland. They will not adjust. You will be forced to adjust. Themselves. So you have to be a little more strategic about it. So you have to make sure you're, you're grounded financially. You're grounded in your ecosystem. You got the eight black folks that can hold space for you. And you have that space. And then you can show up and be your full self. But find an on-ramp in, I think dropping in fully black in these white utopic spaces will just get you just white-walled against mm. resource. And actually, they own the land in a lot of places. Now, there are black folks doing dynamic work in both of these cities. I've met them doing dynamic work. But you'll talk to those folks, and they've had an on-ramp in. They didn't just come in fully black. I think being fully black is something you should do in America, but let's be clear that when these white utopic spaces, when they haven't seen a black person in 12 months, um, it, it has impact when you show up at full volume. I teach workshops all the time in Portland, Seattle. And I can't guarantee right now, if I walk in at full volume, literally I see people eyebrows raised, they start shutting down, like he's yelling at me. Mm. Brother's excited talking about this, a powerful topic. And so I know that there is a place where we have to ask questions. Organizations call me oftentimes from these white utopic spaces. And they say, Aaron, Hold up to resistance. We're going to hire you to write an equity statement. Are you write an equity statement on my website? Because I've realized that we're in trouble now. We're Someone caught us looking racist. Can we get your stamp on it? And I'd say, hold up. I, maybe we can help with this, but can I ask you a couple of questions? Sure, 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 sure. What is your organization's ideal Black person? Hmm. Huh? I'm not answering that question. I didn't stutter ask again. What is your organization's ideal Black person? Aaron, of all black people. Okay, I'll try one more time. What is your organization's ideal black person? This is an unfair question I'm aware of, I need you to look at it because there's a, there's a reason. Finally, they stopped running from the question. We start getting real answers. Hmm. Well, Aaron, if I'm really honest, we've hired five black people over the last three years. And the one that stayed happens to be 
the lightest skin of all of them. And I think one of the realest answers I got from a, a business owner, she said, ideal black person for our organization is a black person that is that helps me forget that that, that helps me forget that they're black mm. as quick as possible. Oof. Oof. Wow. And they will make management in no time. Wow. Because they don't remind me that they're black every day. That's our ideal black person. And when Susie said it, she covered her mouth, was like, oh, I didn't want to say that. But that was real honest. And guess what? We worked on that chunk. Yeah. We worked on that for almost 12 months. And we expanded that particular organization's ability to actually see themselves hmm. and how they were low-key discriminating. Not even low-key. That's like that's being nice. They were, they were simply not making any adjustments to their environment, to their employees, to their folks, so someone could show up as their full self. Hmm. So that's 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 honest leadership. And this isn't the Northwest, it isn't in, the, in, the, in Seattle, Washington, and this is not new. Any person that's lived there for more than 12 months, I don't live there, but I work there a lot. I have a lot of clients in the environment. I work with a lot of white folks in this environment. So that's why I named that. I, I, I navigate those waters with, with, with clarity that I have burned some calories over the last seven years, understanding what people are actually saying when I make it safe for them to say, I'm not going to blast you. I'm not going to, you're going to counsel them that we're trying to get some black folks hired in your organization. You have a powerful opportunity here. Let's get at it. Yeah. And we can do that. But I say that because when I look at black folks showing to themselves, I'm aware that when they do that in these organizations, there is a cost. Mm. And I'm also working hard, but I can guarantee for every one organization I work with, there's 10 that are saying boo about it. There's reacting. So for black folks to show up as their full self, I'm invested in that. But I also want to give them tools to navigate so they can, they can also stay above water and make sure they're employed. And I'm sure that's not just at risk. So I just want to name that it varies from region to region. Yeah. It varies from where they are in their like graduation, if they're starting a career, if they're established, if they are independently wealthy, they can show up a lot more themselves. Yeah. When they actually have resources. So I'm like, get the resource too. Like, let's be real about that. Right. Right. right? And so I, I think that's a balance. I don't think you should definitely compromise who you are, but I'm also real. Yeah. Like when I say that, it's like, where are you from? Where are you at? Are you navigating Portland? Or you're navigating Eugene, or you're navigating Los Angeles, yeah. or you're navigating Atlanta, Georgia, or you're navigating you know, upstate New York versus New York. This has a lot to do with, I think, how much it actually your nervous system. Some black folks will be like, I don't care. I can live out of my car. I can live in an RV. I can live in a mansion. I don't even give a care. I can be myself. You ain't picking that for me. <laughs> be yourself. Be yourself. You, you ain't never gonna, you, you're flexible. Yeah. If you're a black person, it's like, you know what? I need to have like a $200,000 income. I need to have some security. I, need, I, I can't risk that. Well, if you're, in, if you're in the Northwest and you're in Seattle, then you got to be really careful about how much blackness you want to show up because they will snatch. That's the first thing they'll snatch from mm. you mm. when you show up as yourself. They will try to capitalize things first. So if that doesn't work, yeah. be yourself, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I just want to name that's the, that's, the, that's the strategy I would say for people to go majority in the white utopic spaces. Yeah. If you're D.C., if you're in Michigan, if you're in parts of, parts of Los Angeles, parts of communities but where we have numbers, Oakland, Berkeley, these are spaces where you can show up. You can show up and it's not a calorie burn. It's, and they have their own little oppressive narrative, but it's something that if it, that question depends upon where they're showing up from. And so I think for me, because I've been in those areas, I see the distinct difference of the Bay Area versus Portland versus New York versus Atlanta, Georgia. There is a spectrum. So depending on where you are, I would hope that all people can, but I'm realistic about tomorrow when I talk to a black person that's working navigating Portland, I'm going to talk to them differently than someone that in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I would say, I want the end result to be the same as you be yourself, but the, how we get there might take a little more time, Absolutely. a little more economic structure around you before you can really drop and be like, this is me. Absolutely. And, you know, with all of these companies that are 
diving deeper, let's say into more DEI and having initiatives and programs, I feel like that might be the problem and mistake is that they're treating it all the same. Um, Just in listening to you say that, because it makes sense, but it isn't even something that I had considered. Like, yeah, it is an environmental situation for sure. And, um, you know, obviously the spectrum of blackness is different as well there, you know, as you mentioned. So even if you are, you know, a black person in Portland, you may have been from Atlanta. So, or you could be from Mm -hmm. Seattle and now you went to Atlanta. So you wouldn't have have to change Mm -hmm. even in that way. Um, But for companies that want to do DEI correctly, what would you suggest that they do and how should they start? Because again, there are so many different approaches, but what do you think is the right way? To, to really have a successful <laughs> DEI program within a company. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the right way makes me nervous, but I'll, I'll stick with the question. Um, <laughs> because because this is such a fluent way. It's like, what's the right way to raise a child, right? Right. Like, uh-oh. Right. Uh-oh, okay. Right. All right. Let's look at it, right? Well, it depends on a kid. So so sticking with, I'll say, adding to that, because I think the right way is a good, it's a good corner to, to the answer to this question from, but I'll say I'll add to the right way and talk about like what I have seen most successful in um, helping support Black folks mm-hmm. consistently. And this is not, it's happening every time. One thing I find, particularly with white led organizations, is they come in in a panic and they're going too fast. Mm. Right. So I think the speed in which they're trying to achieve their goals, the speed in which they're trying to relieve their guilt feeling of whatever social media attack or whatever internal firing whatever it feels like the end of the world to them like they just got diagnosed with their organization got cancer and really at the end of the day it's bad but it's not unique and we're not going to set a course that is prioritizing white comfort that's the first thing we try and do is how do we slow this down and a lot of people they say well you're trying to make more money no you can't pay me enough anyway but <laughs> this is not about money this is about being effective right right if you look at the actual cost, we try, we have to put a cost on it, but at the end of the day, we're talking about some pretty heavy carnage that these folks are benefiting from. So the, the, the idea of slowing down is not economically, if anything, it's actually hard for me to scale my work because I do work slower. If I could just send you a check in Google Doc and a, a couple of podcasts and you would fix racism in your organization, that's much easier than showing up in your organization, and lying down and interacting and building a team around you and look at the neighborhood and look at the history. That's way more. So I would say slowing things down. So slowing things down enough so we actually can see not just how uncomfortable white people are, but the magnitude of damage to people who are majority historically in the organization, right? We want to see it. And not in a way of like, now we can feel bad about it and sink in the shame and not move, but let's see, so we know how tall it is. You know, a lot of times if you went to a doctor's office and you go, I got the worst stomach ache and a rash in the back of my neck and my hair on one spot is falling out, you fix it. And the doctor's like, oh, sure, what's the blood test? No, no, no blood test. I just need you to fix it. <laughs> I got about 20 minutes. Go. Uh, the doctor's going to make, I, I run a battery of tests on your blood to see what's going on. No. I need to fix it. White folks do this all the time to black folks. They come in with some kind of, I got this weird pain over here and a, and a missing part of my place. The phone just quit. I want you to fix it. I got a weekend and, and 80 bucks. Can you fix it? I'm like, well, we have to do an energetic slowdown enough. And that's our blood test. Our slowdown allows us to see what is actually happening. Right? Yeah. And once I get a sense of that, and that's not just filling out a survey amongst the whole organization of like how they feel about race and Google Docs have huge limitations. It's, it's walking to the space and, and walking in and seeing like how they receive my black body walking to the space, watching how hunched down or chest open the, white, the people, the global majority are in this space. 
watching that everyone that's been hired in the last 10 years happens to be a a, a more Holly Berry, Holly Berry kind of skin tone and 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 not one of them have a Viola Davis kind of skin tone mm. and they don't know why they even noticed it at all. And that 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 we're seeing that trend. And also we'll track like we asked some unfair questions. I gave one example of one. We have a list of unfair questions we ask people that are in leadership. And and, and this is in private. This is not something that we could go on to Google Docs talk like we can come back and get them. It's just like me and them and heart to heart going, let's trust each other and let's be real what's inside. Yeah. And so I think every organization, if we slow down enough, it's a combination of what the culture is at the job and what the culture is at the CEO's home, mm. right? Mm. At the at the at the management's home, right? So oftentimes the most diverse place they go to is their job because they're forced to be diverse. Their actual home life, their day life is as as monocrop as the next massive farm that has mm. corn. And so in that context, I think it's so important that we we chart to say, hey, this is about work, but hey, can you tell me where do you live? Like not like what neighborhood? Like are there black people within 100 miles of your house? And we're in Portland and Seattle and some upper class homes. They're like, ah, you know what I. I actually haven't seen a black person in my neighborhood in 20 years or 10 years. Or I don't even know what happened at the cane, right? So there's a way in which this is not just at work problem. This is actually a life design for a lot of the people that design the organization, right. having even assessed their actual design. They're like, I'm willing to work at work, but my home life, that's different. Yeah. That's where it all is born from. Yeah. And so for us, we slow it down and we go deep. We slow it down and we go deep. So for me, if I say it right way, it's slow and deep. Hmm. And in that depth, we build relationship. In that depth, we greet the rigor of healing carnage and not the performance of good equity statements on websites. And that's a, it's a big contrast. And we also understand that equity statements and plans are living documents. So we wanna make sure that we have a design that we get to go back and update. Cause oftentimes you'll get an equity statement on most websites and it's where they wanna be in five years, not where they're currently at. Mm. And so for me, I think, I say, where are we? Where are we not, not what we want it to be, but where actually are we? Okay, so so getting that portrait is a series of questions, interactions, assessments. I say assessment. I'm gonna be vague here. On-site assessments, walking on-site. Where's the organization placed at? What part of the part of the city is a city that's upper upper class, high class space where it's like economically elite people go to? Is it next to a big university? Is it in the hood so per se? But yet the environment's in is like protected by all the security. Supposed a boundary for the folks that are in an environment that are low income. And now I think about what is the actual overall exposure to diversity in general. So I say, like, what is your black time? What do you mean? I remember black time. Like, you watch films with black people in it, but how many actual black folks have made it to your dinner table? <laughs> well, none in the last 20 years. That's useful. Let's not shame you for that. Let's be aware that you haven't right. had actual actual personal relationship with someone. That's helpful to know why you're struggling on actually hiring someone when you actually had to interact in a normal, normal context. So for me, there's a, a way in which we try and build just a, a complete holistic, no pun intended, but holistic analysis that we try and keep shame and and, and, and that plus as small as possible. Clearly, I didn't say none at all, but as small as possible for someone to get really candid about where they actually are. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I even allow, I allow, I invite, and, and maybe it's allowance too, but it's more on an invite for them to be un, uh, unedited. So that is where I start. And to me, I find that when leadership is on board and that honest level, it, then we can go down to the next manager level, then we go down to the employee level, and we can drop down to more of a bigger, bigger situation. So because of that, I think we have found, I've worked with some, some yoga studios for like two years. I've worked with some like more like cubicle office standard folks um, uh, for like two years at a time. And this is, this is rigorous. And I do bump into a lot of folks that their racism material is heavier than their budget. <laughs> and so it's like, we have to find a balance of like what healing can take place with the limitations we have. And that's real. If you're like a small business, you don't have the extra for that consulting fee, but you also right. have a lot of potential causing a lot of um, harm and also a lot of healing. So I'm down to like adjust, but there's a way that we want to 
we want to make, I had this important dance of being thorough, being human, being deep, which makes it not scalable, mm. but doesn't get effective. So that means I can't work with a hundred companies yeah. in a given 12 months. Yeah. I don't expand out to a massive team of black folks that may or may not have the patience or training or whatever. We can grow a team, but it's gonna be a lot slower. Yeah. But I do find that the effectiveness to me feels better than I've worked with all these folks. It's more of like, we've been effective with these spaces. Have we been effective in that approach? Yes, we have. But I guarantee our numbers are much better if I have a bit, if I have over 10 companies hmm. and I've been unsuccessful with like four of them. If I work with a hundred companies and I'm still only effective with, with six of them, then I'm like, I'd rather work with, with, with six and be effective and keep those numbers really good yeah. um, than like have a big portfolio and, and, and 2% success rate. So being realistic that this trauma is oftentimes deeper than a weekend, mm-hmm. it's deeper than even 12 months. Um, but we want to make sure we're able to be realistic about what steps they actually can take and, and, and really look at what we are not able to do and look at that. Well, we can't do that. We're in a school district. We're with the Oakland Unified School District. We have limitations in a school district. For sure. But this is what we can do. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's not get radical and burn the school down and go, Holistic school with like wooden desk and and natural food and <laughs> now we don't got the budget for that we're struggling just to not harm these eight kids in the classroom so let's let's start there or whatever it might be so I think there's a way we have to kind of really just assess our hearts and go okay mm. this is where I want to be but this is what we have actual access to let's get at it though yeah. let's get at that really yeah. hardcore so yeah. that's 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 the way I would say would be a right way mm-hmm. I can stick with that I love I'll that say answer effective too yeah yeah um so I'll, I'll pause there I think those are within a within a bit of our of our our talk that's that's definitely a a once over to that answer i think that's a fabulous answer and i think a lot of people are going to resonate with that i'm i'm a fan of what you do and i think it like i mentioned before it's very needed it's very important um i would love for people to know where they can find you if they want to contact you possibly work with you how can people keep up with the work that you were doing yeah so i am um holisticresistance.com is an easy place to get hold to me. Um, if you're interested in the film and or the project and or the training, you can go to cutproject.org. That's the radical piece that we just birthed this year. Um, and you can email both of those sites uh, and get right back to me. I myself and or my team will, will reach back to you. And then if you know, usually what happens, we kind of funnel people over to a phone call to a phone number and we can get in contact with them that way as well. So we can call you back or yeah, it gives all those prompts there on holisticresistance.org and holisticresistance.com cutproject.org is the two main places that reach for me. Great, and we'll put all of that in the show notes. Aaron, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you. It's been an honor chatting with you as well. We need to talk.